On this week's episode, we welcome Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. With the Prime Minister-elect of Israel, the Honorable Benjamin Netanyahu. He's the first Prime Minister to be born in Israel after his Declaration of Independence. And he's the longest serving Prime Minister in the history of Israeli elections. Mr. Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your new book, My Story. Well, thank you, Armstrong. It's good to be with you again and with your audience. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, talk about the process of writing this book. Was it a catharsis for you? You talked about writing about this book during budget meetings. Was, was it so important that you had to write this book because this story needed to be told? The answer is yes, but despite that answer, I couldn't write it while I was in office. I, I'm grateful for the outgoing government, which we've uh, brought down after a fitful year, for giving me the time to write the book. Now, it's true, I wrote it in uh, budget meetings as leader of the opposition. I wrote it in uh, the swirling roads of the Negev and the Galilee as I was going to campaign stops. Uh, I wrote it longhand. And I wrote it because uh, it poured out from my, my heart and soul. I guess it's a story I wanted to tell. And uh, I'm very glad that uh, readers in Israel and the United States and, and many parts of the world are finding it of interest. They read it, they tell me that they pick it up and they they uh, don't put it down until it's, it's over. Given that it's not exactly a tiny book, that's a big compliment. Well, uh, the, but, the economist refers to it sort of as a Juggernaut. You know, you, you, you revered your father, Benzion, as I did my father, James, and you talked about the move to the United States, but you enjoy Jonathan's re uh, return to Israel. Why did you part? Well, we, we left uh, Israel for a few years as uh, children and then as teenagers because of my father's research, historical research, which uh, he did in the United States, but we were born in Israel, we were raised in Israel, we went back to serve in the army of Israel, and we had, of course, an enormous appreciation and admiration of the United States that has guided me throughout my life. But Israel was my country, and when the time came to uh, join the army uh, and defend the country, I did so not only without reservations, but with great enthusiasm, as did my other two brothers. No matter how much you learn from your parents, one of the things that's glaring in this book as if your military career was almost finishing school, manhood, leadership, crisis, how to navigate, having to see death firsthand and navigating, seeing what people are made of. You tell it in such a riveting way in this book about your military experience. Well, no question, it was a formative, uh, uh, these were formative uh, years, five years between the ages of 18 uh, and 23, I joined uh, a special unit, I suppose, a combination of what you would call Navy SEALs and Delta Force, much smaller, very tight, very select group. Uh, and it was uh, it was uh, hard to get into it, but I can tell you it was much harder staying in it because the, uh, the training was grueling. Uh, the uh, missions were daunting. I nearly died uh, several times in a firefight in the middle of the Suez Canal during a war of attrition we had at the time with Egypt in storming a hijacked uh, airplane in uh, uh, Tel Aviv airport uh, and, uh, and and many other uh, opportunities which I, I escaped death uh, 
So first of all, I was glad to be alive. More importantly, I made sure all of my soldiers came out alive. We performed all our missions, most of them clandestine, beyond, uh, sometimes deep beyond uh, enemy lines. Uh, and I can tell a lot of it. Of course, there are some things I can't talk about, but I talk quite a bit about it. And, uh, and yes, I find that readers are intrigued by it because they get a first-hand view of what Israel's special units are like. Uh, and they're, they're alike and yet unlike any others in the world. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a story. There's a lot of adventure there and uh, a lot of brushes with, with uh, near death. Um, the Honorable Benjamin Netanyahu in his book, My Story, you know, there's so much that he talks about in his book about his relationships with the American presidents um, that were in office during his service to his beloved Israel. But he, one of the things that are fascinating, and I'm bringing the book back home to the United States now, where he talked about in 1996, where former President Bill Clinton talked about how they did everything in their power to make sure he was defeated. And you talked about also about how many so often in your career, people who have schemed against you to undermine you. And also the disrespect from former President Barack Obama, when you talk about Iran and you talk about their naivety about foreign policy and about being in Afghanistan. Talk about that aspect of the book where you talk about American presidents, you talk about foreign policy, and you talk about the decisions that were made that came back to be very costly. Well, I think that you have to understand that Israel and the United States are like a family, and in a family, you have uh, common bonds, deep bonds, which are actually unbreakable through successive administrations, Republican and Democrats alike. But as in a family, you can also have differences of opinion. And I certainly had differences of opinion with uh, uh, with President Clinton, President Obama, uh, sometimes even with President Trump, I have to say. Uh, and, and these were based on uh, our assessment of what is the, the true situation in the Middle East. And we saw the true problem in the Middle East is First of all, vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, is their persistent refusal to accept a Jewish state in any boundary, and they saw the uh, uh, that problem rooted in what they thought are settlements, which was really a, a in other words, of saying uh, Jews living in their ancestral homeland in the land of the Bible, which has been our homeland for uh, over three thousand years, uh, and. Uh, and of course, the Palestinians said you shouldn't live in any place, not only in Judea and Samaria, shouldn't be in Tel Aviv, shouldn't be in uh, Jerusalem, you shouldn't be in Haifa. They basically wanted us out. Uh, they mistakenly told the world that we are like the Belgians in the Congo, you know, uh, 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 foreign people taking over a strange land uh, and uh, doing all these horrible things to the natives. Hey, we're not doing horrible things to the natives. We're not doing anything except offering peace and coexistence and prosperity. Uh, but it is they who uh, drove us out of our, our land. It is they who wanted to drive us in the sea. So we had a difference, a difference with the, uh, with the president, uh, both presidents Clinton and Obama. But I said something else. I said, look, we can get peace with the broader Arab world. The Palestinians are basically one to two percent of the Arab world. We can get peace with the rest of the Arab world. And they said, no. First, you have to go through the Palestinians, uh, and that uh, you know. Uh, we're. Uh, they didn't agree with that. They they didn't agree with that. They said no. You have to go through Ramallah. And, uh, those people didn't want peace with Israel. They wanted a peace without Israel. The Palestinians. They want not a state next to Israel, but a state instead of Israel. They call us the colonials, but we are actually the original natives of the land. We are the owners of the land. We've been there for thousands of years. It is they who kicked us out. 
and we came back to live. We're not kicking out anyone. They can live with us. Anyway, we couldn't agree on that. So it took me a long time to go around this Palestinian veto, get to uh, uh, the Gulf states, and we made once, it worked a lot in a lot of clandestine meetings that I had to do uh, and to make, and I did that with, uh, uh, finally with the help of President Trump. Uh, but the, the meetings began well before, secret meetings well, okay, started well before uh, his term in office. And we created, we achieved the historic Abraham Accords. In other words, contrary to what all the foreign policy experts in Washington were saying, in contrast to what uh, two U.S. presidents were saying, we did make peace. We started to expand peace. We made four historic peace agreements with Morocco, with uh, with Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates, and with the Sudan, uh, without going through the Palestinians, because if it's up to them, we'd never make peace. And indeed, for a quarter of a century, we didn't, because you were stuck in this Palestinian group. We got out of the group. And now we're in a position to continue, as I intend to do when I'm sworn in as prime minister within a week or so, to pursue an even broader peace with Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Arab world, those who are not uh, beholden to this Palestinian uh, straitjacket. And I think this is great. It's not only great for us, uh, great for the Arab world, and it's great also for ultimately for the Palestinians who are controlled by this uh, rejectionist uh, leadership for close to a century, who basically want to wipe us away. Uh, and I think that's one issue of disagreement. The other one was Iran. I thought Iran is the most dangerous uh, force in the Middle East, one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It shouldn't be allowed to have uh, a path to nuclear weapons, which is what the failed agreement with Iran, nuclear agreement, would do. So I had these disagreements with them. But, you know, it's disagreements, as I said, uh, I'm strong within the family. And, uh, and I never lose sight of the fact that the U.S., under any administration, is our indispensable ally. You know, um, one of the things you pointed out in the book, which fascinated in, in about two minutes before we go to a break here, is John Kerry and the training of um, the soldiers in Afghanistan and how you said once it collapsed, they will become your enemy. But if you look at America and you look at Afghanistan, you really lay out from your experience the, the stability you've given your country over the last couple of decades how it, important it is to learn from the past and never realize and realize that your enemies really don't change. Well, you know, when you're faced with radical uh, Islamists who are committed to the destruction of uh, Israel, they call us, as Iran does, the small Satan. They call the U.S. the great Satan. They chant death to Israel, death to America, and death to all the infidels in between. And that includes most of the Arabs because they're not radical uh, Iranian Shiites. Uh, that uh, that's a regime you're not going to placate. It's a regime you're not going to pacify. It's a regime that you have to oppose uh, strongly, and you have to realize that any territory that you vacate uh, in the Middle East will be taken over by Iran's proxies. Yes, I had a disagreement with uh, uh, John Kerry about that. Uh, he said uh, we could uh, move away from, from uh, Judea Samaria. Uh, we could uh, let the uh, Palestinian Authority uh, you know, America will train them, and uh, once we depart, uh, it'll, they'll be fine. They'll be able to handle the Islamists. And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. You know, I don't think that'll happen because we did that. We tried that in Gaza. We left, and as soon as we left Hamas, an Iranian proxy took over with the backing of Iran. When we left Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah, an Iranian proxy, uh, proxy, took over with the backing of Iran as well. And I said, that's what will happen again. 
if we left Judea Samaria, the West Bank, as it's called. Well, um, when I said this to uh, to Secretary of State John Kerry, he said to me, "Look, uh, I want to prove to you that we, the United States, can train local forces, uh, and they'll be able to hold up to the Islamists." And he suggested that he arranged for me a clandestine visit to Afghanistan, where I could see the uh, great work done by the uh, the U.S. training the, the local forces to resist the Taliban once the United States leaves. And I, uh, I said to him, John, you know, I respect you, but I fully disagree with you. I'm telling you that literally minutes after you leave, uh, those local forces that you trained will be wiped away uh, by the Taliban and they'll take over. Uh, and of course, we can see now in retrospect uh, who was right and who was wrong. And it's the same thing with the, the argument that we could never have peace with Arab states unless we go through the, the Palestinians first who veto any such peace. Uh, in fact, John Kerry said, and I quote this in the book too, he said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. Well, it did happen. Actually, it happened four times already and it'll happen many more times uh, in, the, in the coming uh, uh, years, I believe, uh, if uh, the Arab leaders, uh, I think, will respond to my overtures. And I, I think they will. So I, I think that there's been a difference of views between American presidents and Israelis, and that's natural. Um, we can't see eye to eye on everything. We're here, you're there. But I think what great things happen when American an American president and Israeli prime minister see eye to eye, great things happen. And that happened in the last part of the Trump administration when uh, President Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, long overdue given that King David uh, declared it as our capital three millennia ago, okay? Uh, when uh, he recognized our sovereignty in the Golan Heights, when he walked away from the uh, horrible nuclear deal, uh, and especially when he joined me in uh, completing the Abraham Accords. And I think more things can follow. These are good things for Israel, good things for our Arab neighbors, and good things for America, because we all stand together against Iran, which threatens all of us. And God forbid, should this radical Islamic regime that chance death to America, uh, get possession of nuclear weapons, and also have a path paved with gold to a nuclear arsenal with hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, tax relief. I'm glad to see that this is at least momentarily off the table, but I can assure you that this occupied a good part, preventing Iran from having nuclear weapons, occupied a good part of my, of my time uh, in office uh, and will occupy a good part of my time uh, returning to office. You know, you talked about in your book your most recent defeat, and of course, the people recognize your leadership by empowering you again. You talk about Bennett's Muslim Brotherhood and Nafatali Bennett. Talk about that aspect of your book and the significance, and also help our American audience understand what is it that's so misunderstood about you? Because I'm sure in writing a book, Mr. Prime Minister, there are things you learn about yourself when you go over, you say, wow, talk about those things, about the person they may not know. They talk about the fact that in your book, you don't talk about the indictments, you don't talk about the corruption. But if you read the book in your own way, you do talk about it. Yeah, I do. I do talk about it, but I'm still in a legal process. Uh, interesting. Look, I was, uh, uh, I was brought to trial on fake charges, trumped up charges. Uh, and, uh, you know, anybody would say that, right? But, uh, you know, given the things that were revealed in my trial, 
you see horrible things. You see the blackmailing of uh, witnesses. You see the use of uh, the most advanced spyware on the planet against uh, people around me in order to uh, essentially to blackmail them. Uh, and all of that was revealed. So, uh, you know, these, these charges are crumbling in court in the last year. And that's the interesting thing. You know, we had elections. I lost the elections. And then I went to trial. And then in this year, the government fell. The government that deposed me fell, and I was brought back uh, to office again. Unheard of, really. I think it's not happened in, you know, in very few times that people uh, can come back twice from uh, political defeat. Leaders usually don't do that. But I was brought back for several reasons. One, the voters could now compare what's life like in Israel and what the leadership was like when I was there for 15 years. And when somebody replaced me, okay, everybody said, uh, you know, you, you can't see it unless you actually see it. So now they could see it. The other thing, though, is that interestingly enough, even though in previous election campaigns, the charges of corruption were raised per, as, as the reason why I shouldn't be, shouldn't stay in office and shouldn't return to office, in this year, in this campaign, it wasn't mentioned, I don't think it was mentioned even once in the uh, opponent's uh, in my rival's campaign uh, for the simple reason that it collapsed in court and people could see it. So I came back with uh, a renewed uh, affirmation of my leadership and my policies from the people of Israel. And I'm, I'm very grateful to them. And I'm very grateful to the millions of supporters outside Israel who uh, share the belief of the majority of Israelis that we should lead Israel in the direction that I've led it now for, uh, for the last decade and a half. Your father was a visionary historian. This is according to you. And in many ways, you're a visionary in your own right. In the book, you talk about this, but help us impact, unpack the impact your father had on your vision, had given you the strength to survive any and every circumstance. It's as if your life was prepared for you at the feet of your father. And now you as if you're the father of Israel. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you this. My father had an enormous impact on me. He was a great historian, uh, a man of uh, unbelievable intellectual and moral uh, clarity. Uh, and he taught me that uh, in the field of nations, in the field of history, uh, the strong survive and the weak don't. And you can be the most moral country, the most moral people in the world, but if you are unable to defend yourself against the forces of evil, they devour you. That's what happened to the Jewish people over uh, centuries. We were uh, kicked out of our, of our homeland. We were dispersed among the nations. We were exiled, pogromed, murdered, and finally massacred in the greatest crime in the history of humanity, the Holocaust. And so uh, we somehow managed to uh, retain or uh, restore uh, our sovereignty in our ancient homeland, the land of Israel, build a country, build an army. And now we had the capacity to defend ourselves. And so my father's generation was tasked with uh, restoring uh, the state of Israel. My generation was tasked with assuring its continuity, assuring its, uh, uh, its, uh, uh, its permanence. And how do you do that? Well, the only way you can do that is by assuring its strength. And what is the first element of strength? It's very clear, especially when you're faced with neighbors like Iran, you have to have military strength. But military strength costs a lot of money. So in order to have a strong military, you need a strong economy. A strong economy we did not have because we 
we were built on socialist lines. One of the things I describe in my book is the great uh, revolution of turning semi-socialist Israel into a free market, robust, innovative economy. So we did that too. Uh, and all of that derives from my father's uh, insight that the, the uh, key to uh, survival is strength, military, economic, diplomatic strength. Of course, the inner strength, the inner fiber of the people comes before all that. But uh, I've basically devoted uh, my, my life and my uh, premierships to uh, build Israel's uh, strength. And that strength also brought us peace. Because when you're weak, nobody makes peace with you. They make peace with the strong. And in our area, which is still not surrounded by democracies, it's not only to get the peace that you need to be strong, it's to keep the peace you need to be strong. Because people always look around and see, who's our peace partner? Are they strong? Are they resolute? Can we trust them? And if they're, they're not, and if Israel is not strong, it will not only not make peace, it won't keep the peace. I insist on making Israel strong, and I'll insist on making it even stronger in the coming years. That's good for Israel. It's good for peace. You know, it's interesting. In your book, you talk about, you've known Biden a long time. And you talked about in a conversation with him, he talked about the Democratic Party shift on Israel. What did that mean to you? And do you get the cooperation from the Biden administration? And of course, you're being a global diplomat. I know you're going to answer that very carefully. No, and answer it truthfully. First of all, Joe Biden has been my friend for 40 years, ever since he was a young senator from Delaware, and I was a young diplomat, Israeli diplomat in Washington. And we've disagreed over the years. He always says, Bibi, I love you. I don't agree with anything you say. And I say, Joe, it's uh, it's mutual. It's not actually. Both of us agree sometimes and quite a few times with each other. But uh, yeah, we disagreed on Iran. I think that disagreement is less, uh, you know, is less pronounced today, given that Iran's true nature has been unmasked for all the world to see. It's brutal oppression of the men and women who are brave, uh, so uh, so brave and uh, standing up to that regime. So I think a nuclear deal is not in the offing. Uh, and we agree on many other things. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I would say that uh, there is a myopia here about, uh, you know, about the fringe groups, uh, especially in, in the Democratic Party. They don't really speak for the majority of Americans. Most Americans... Uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents support Israel. They instinctively see Israel as a, basically as a, uh, as a front line uh, of democracies in the Middle East. Uh, and in many ways, the radical Muslims see it that way too. They say, you know, you are the small Satan, they're the great Satan because you are them, that's the United States, and they are you. And, and in many ways, our free uh, open societies are anathema to them and they are, we do stand together again. So most of them support Israel. And by the way, people don't know that. It's true that there's been a surge in Republican support for Israel in the last decade. But Democratic support, despite the radical fringe, has stayed pretty stable. And, it's, and these are great numbers when you look at it compared to other countries. Israel is uh, one of the countries most supported by the American public. And they're right. I'll tell you why. Because America has no better ally than Israel. Uh, and Israel certainly has no better ally than the United States. Uh, and we both stand for the ideas of freedom. You know, we're the we're the original promised land, uh, and the, the we ingathered our exiles, as the biblical prophecy said, built a free, democratic, prosperous state. Uh, and you're the new promised land. And I would say both of our countries are built on an idea. That's the main thing we 
We were created with a purpose, ours to resurrect the Jewish people and yours to be the guardian of liberty in the world. And as long as we remember our most basic, uh, the most basic purposes of, our, of, of the foundation of our countries, we'll be all right and our alliance will be terrific. You know, as I say goodbye to you and thank you for always honoring us. You know, I remember um, decades ago, I was in your office in the Knesset um, in Jerusalem for a sit down with you. And one of the things about reading your book, my story, I've watched how you've aged over the years, how you've matured to become more calm. And you know, everybody is talking about the fact that you're naming your cabinet and they want to say it's controversial because if you don't name someone LGBTQ, you're controversial. But those may be the values of Americans, but it's not necessarily the values of the Middle East. And it doesn't mean you malign, uh, you're against someone. You just have to do what is in the best interest of your country and to keep your party together because you're still building a coalition government. So I would like for you to talk about as part of your story, but also aging, growing older, growing wiser and realizing what really is important, especially in this fact that you've got another chance as the prime minister of the country that you've dedicated your life to. Well, I, I think in some cases, you know, our, our, our basic character is formed uh, in early years, but as you mature, you gain wisdom, insight, and experience, and you're less uh, erratic, uh, you know, you're less, uh, 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 taken off course by events because you understand what is important and what is not. You separate the wheat from the chaff, uh, and that helps a lot. Uh, uh, so uh, it, wisdom and experience are very important in leadership, but they don't substitute, obviously, for uh, bold action when you need to take it or to be circumspect when you don't. And you, you the, the best way you can get to make those decisions is by, uh, uh, you know, going through... Uh, going through the trials and, 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 and through the tribulations of uh, leadership. Uh, so I've been fortunate to have been reelected time and again by the Israeli people who think that as, uh, to use your words, as I mature, I, I apparently do not get worse. Uh, what, is, uh, what, is the, what do the decades give you? They give you perspective on yourself. They give you perspective on uh, the historic times we're in and the role that you should, uh, you should be uh, playing. Uh, more importantly, they give you, I think, a perspective on what is crucial and what is not. And I, the most important thing for me is to assure the survival, future, prosperity, and security of the state of Israel. Uh, I think I have two great tasks. One is to block Iran's as best as I can from having nuclear weapons, which will threaten the entire world. And the second is to expand the peace, uh, to complete the circle of peace around us. Uh, and the third, by the way, is to continue the free market technological revolution that has made Israel a light onto the nations uh, and will improve the life of all the nations. Now, I, I think one of the things is I have, you know, as the years pass, I have less to prove, uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, I, I live by these principles and people can see that. They can see, they, they know very well. If a politician, a political leader is out for himself, they know it. You know, they don't buy all the politicians speak of the common good and their purpose, and many of them believe it. But I'll tell you, the, the public has a clear sense. Uh, it, they understand if you're guided by a mission, if you're guided out only by looking out for yourself. And it doesn't make a difference what your political detractors say about you, because they'll always say that you're out for yourself. The public knows. 
they have a very good sense of it. And uh, I'm happy to say that they think that of me continu um, continuously, certainly in this last election, and I intend to prove them right. I want to thank you so much for my story. It was a great read, a lot of surprises, much respect, and uh, we wish you well. And we certainly celebrate the fact that Israel has and always will be our greatest ally. Thank you so much for joining us. I wish you well, not only in the success of your book, but in the, in the treacherous road that lies ahead for you. But you've been seasoned enough and become wise enough to handle it. And we have no doubt that Israel will continue to prosper and benefit under your leadership. Thank you, Armstrong. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to plug my book, which I just did unabashedly. Read my book, I think you'll find it of interest. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. 